morning. It's always a pleasure to be here and to uh, open God's Word with you. This morning, I had planned uh, kind of a different direction to go with, with this message, to do kind of the traditional Palm Sunday type message. And um, just with the events that took place uh, last week on Monday in Nashville, I believe that the Lord has sort of led me in a different direction on, on how to take this while still um, giving that, that joy of the coming king into, into Jerusalem that we just read about. But I, I thought I would share some things that have been on my heart lately in this Easter season. In the Easter season, um, I see a sort of a time of reflection. Uh, a lot of people um, take this season. It's, it's one of the two days a year where churches are a bit more filled than they are on any other given Sunday. We have Christmas and, and Easter, and you know, and many of us grew up in different traditions and ways. Some of us grew up going to church five days a week. Some of us grew up going to church eight days a week, and some of us grew up going to church two days a year. So whatever your tradition is or how you um, got to be where you are today, this morning, we do welcome you and we're glad you're here. We do um, want to take this time and reflect upon many things. And, and some of the great, greatest and most memorable moments of Christ's earthly ministry and earthly life actually took place in this time of what we, we would, might call the Passion, the, the week before His crucifixion. And uh, there's the Last Supper, there's His betrayal and His arrest, His trials before, the, before uh, Herod and Pilate, and then the crucifixion of itself, and of course, the resurrection, that great, that great day that we celebrate on um, our next Sunday. But today is what is commonly referred to as Palm Sunday. And this is the day we look back on Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And it is a beautiful scene in all the different movies about Christ and all the different pictures that are painted about Him. And you see all the palm branches and the people rejoicing, and that's, that's a wonderful thing. But ultimately, if you, if you really think about the triumphal entry of Christ, it's, it's not such a beautiful scene when we look at the whole context that it's in, if we really get down to it. It's, it's actually a picture of a coming tragedy. Tragedy, as we know in this world, is a very harsh reality. There's no escaping it, and any time tragedy strikes, there are a number of different ways that we can go about it and how we react, and there are multiple different sides and people casting blame, and, but, but some choose to stay quiet about tragedy. They just kind of let everything unfold how it will. Uh, some take to uh, demanding stricter laws and regulations and restrictions to be put in place to prevent another tragedy, um, and others just criticize and use whatever platform they have to demean other people. Uh, one person on Twitter uh, I saw this last week went as far to say this, it's very surprising that there would be a mass shooting at a Christian school, given, the la- given that lack of prayer is often blamed for these horrible events. Is it possible they weren't praying enough or correctly, despite being a Christian school? And while we can hear this and be shocked or angered or saddened that somebody would, would come out and say something like this, I would encourage us to step back and take a look at things from a worldly perspective for just a moment. A question that, that all Christians should be prepared to answer is this. If God is good, then what? 
why do bad things happen? Exactly, thank you. Uh, because not only is this a fair question from, the world, from a worldly point of view, um, because it is, but it opens up a gospel opportunity for us because we, we have the answers to these kinds of questions. We have Scripture. We have the revelation of God. And it not only gives us a gospel opportunity, but it introduces a word that many churches today avoid, a word that many churches today will change the meaning or even change the word itself, and that is the word sin. In many churches today, the word sin is not used. It's, it's replaced with uh, brokenness or hurt or darkness. And while sin is, uh, can be described as those things, the, the word sin itself, I think, needs to come into light a little bit more, especially if we're going to be presenting the gospel to somebody. A, a person cannot truly have good news if they don't understand the bad news. But when tragedy happens, no new law is going to fix it. No elected official is ever going to fix it, and here's why. The root of every problem and tragedy that takes place in this world is not guns, it's not mental health, it's not bad laws or anything else to that effect, but the root of the problem is sin. And because of sin, we have these different things that happen. We have people acting upon their sin. We have a sin problem in this world. And look for a moment at Romans chapter 8, if you would, starting in verses, verse 18. It says this, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what was what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Paul was not ignorant to the sufferings of human existence. In fact, Paul went through um, a great number of sufferings in his lifetime that most of us will never experience. But we, and all creation, await this glorious day when Christ makes all things new, when Christ returns and he sets things right. And what you and I are doing right now, sitting here in this church, sitting in the pews, um, in light of what's going on and in the world's eyes, is foolish. The world sees this, what we're doing here, as foolish. In fact, with the things that have been going on today, we are actually targets as we sit here. We are vulnerable. And so my question to you today is, why are you here? Why are you sitting here this morning? If you're a regular attender, it's always wonderful to see your beautiful and smiling faces. But if you're here and you're a Christmas or an Easter type of person, why? Why are you here right now, this morning? For those who call upon the name of the Lord as our true hope and as our Savior, it's because you have true hope. You have that one true hope. You have a Savior who you trust 
And we don't fear those who can kill the body. We are here because we have such a great Savior who is worthy of our worship. And we stand against the world when they say this is foolishness to be here, or don't you feel unsafe to be here, and we say he is worthy. And we will be here, and we will praise him, no matter the, co- the consequences or the cost. And this Savior who we worship is the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords, and he has triumphed over sin and death. But no sinful man can find a solution for sin. Only the sinless Savior provided that solution. So when people ask us, if God is good, then why do bad things happen? We can answer by addressing sin and the hope that is to come as we share the gospel with them. But most people place this expectation on God that the world usually puts on him. That if he doesn't do something, if God is good and evil things happen, if God doesn't do something to stop evil right here, right now, he either can't be good or he doesn't actually exist. And the reason that I suggest that the triumphal entry of Christ is not this great feel-good story that it's often presented is because of people's expectations of Christ. And we need to view Christ correctly in all things. We can have expectations of Jesus as long as they are in line with what the Bible says. The Bible says Jesus is uh, the God-man, perfect and holy. This is an expectation that we can have of Christ, that he will be perfect and holy and good. The Bible says that Jesus is coming back in glory. This is an expectation that we can have of Jesus because the Word tells us that this is true. These aren't things that we have concocted in our own heads and our own hearts to who we want Jesus to be, but this is what the Bible has told us who he is and what he is. It's when we start putting our own expectations on Jesus, what or who we want him to be based on our own desires. This is called idolatry. It's a God in our own making, and it's no God at all. You know, it's, it's often funny. There's a comedian named Tim Hawkins, and he talks about these um, interesting Bible verses or the Bible stories that um, he doesn't quite understand why some parents decorate their kids' rooms to, to be this, and he uses the example of Noah's Ark. You know, it's a Great story, and you got a lot of cute animals and the eight people, and he says, but do you tell your kids why there's only eight people? Do you tell your kids why there's only two of every animal? Do you, when you paint the, the nursery wall with all the cute animals, do you have a bunch of screaming people over here on this wall as, as they're suffering under the wrath of God? And I think the triumphant, triumphal entry is kind of along those same lines in this, is we have the donkey, we have Jesus, and we have the people praising What happened before that? What happens after that? And it's when we start putting these expectations on Jesus. But the followers of Jesus, these these followers who are here at this moment, John tells us in his account, are the ones who had seen the raising of Lazarus or had heard of it. And look at verse 11 in um, this, this passage here that we're reading today in Luke, and we'll see what the expectation these people had of Jesus says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Okay? Immediately. The Jewish people thought that this was the moment they had been waiting for. 
This was the moment that their Messiah had come, and he was going to come and establish his kingdom. His kingdom was coming with him. And what did this all mean? It means that they expected him to lead a revolt against the Roman Empire. So Jesus tells them this parable of the nobleman and his ten servants. And the expectations the people had of Jesus were wrong. They got this wrong here. He did not come to overthrow the Roman Empire. In fact, Jesus taught that they give to the Roman Empire what is due to the Roman Empire. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. But just a short while after this, and into Jerusalem when Jesus goes into the temple, he now overturns the tables of the money-changing stations and chases everybody out. Jesus didn't come to lead a revolt. Verse 10 in chapter 19 tells us that, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That was Jesus' purpose in his first coming, was to seek and and save the lost. Now, he is coming again in great glory and authority, and all will bow to him. But that was not the case in the first coming. Could, could Jesus, here's the question, could Jesus have called down angels from heaven and put Rome to rest in that moment? Sure. As he's being arrested in the garden, Jesus tells his disciples, do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father? And at once he would send, what? Twelve legions of angels. And a Roman legion was the largest military unit at that time, and during the time of Jesus, it was about 5,800 soldiers. So you times that by 12, and that's what Jesus is talking about, 12 legions of angels. So of course he could have. But then, what does the text say after that? He doesn't because the scriptures must be fulfilled. He is perfectly humble. It's so simple in words Yet the greatest price was paid because of it. And this payment was what was in view in our passage today. Verses 28 and 29. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples. After correcting his followers to the true nature of his kingdom that the, the, the leader, the king, would have to go away first before he comes back. He was set on Jerusalem. He knew full well what was going to happen when he got there. This was his last trip because the road to Jerusalem was the road to his own execution. This triumphal entry is also a death march, a death march, but one of great triumph, one that would ultimately lead to the saving of many lives. And I don't really have time to do this this morning, but if you ever want to do an interesting study, um, study the characters of Joseph um, from Genesis, not Joseph as in Jesus' earthly father, but Joseph in Genesis compared to Christ. And it's really quite fascinating, the, the similarities and the beautiful picture that the, that the Bible paints of this. But um, anyway, verse 30 begins with Jesus and his very specific and interesting instructions for his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, you shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent, away, sent went away and found it just as he had told them. When we come to the triumphal entry, we have to consider the donkey. You know, I, I kind of see donkeys, there, there are different patterns throughout the Bible, especially in the book of Revelation. You have a lot of threes and, and sevens and twelves and all that. 
I like to think of donkeys as a good pattern throughout the Bible, too. There's some really interesting stories of donkeys. You have the talking donkey in the book of Numbers, which is a fantastic story because he doesn't even question why his donkey's talking. He just has a full-on conversation with his donkey, which is hilarious. But we have to consider the donkey in this story as well because it's a very specific set of instructions that Jesus gives to his disciples. If he said, just go in and find uh, something for me to ride into the city, that would be different. But Jesus specifically says a cult, but it had to be a specific one, tied in a specific place, and it had to be the one that no one had ever yet sat upon. Not only that, but he even tells them what to say if someone questions them about it. So first, why a donkey? Well, we go back to Jesus' answer in the garden, so that scripture would be fulfilled. Look at Zechariah 9.9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's a beautiful picture of humility. But I thought this was really interesting too. Look also at Genesis chapter 49. This is Jacob blessing Judah, starting in verse 8. It says this, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dare rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. The king, and we know that Judah is the kingly line, Jesus descended from Judah, the king would come and bring many to himself. He is humble, and he rides a donkey. Spurgeon says this about this particular passage. In a powerful way, this prophecy over Judah is a description of Judah's greatest descendant, Jesus Christ. The dying patriarch was speaking of his own son, Judah, but while speaking of Judah, he had a special eye to our Lord, who sprang from the tribe of Judah. Everything, therefore, which he says of Judah, the type, he means with regard to our greater Judah, the antitype, our Lord, Jesus Christ. And of course, we know this to be true, and Christ is indeed coming again to bring these things to completion, to consummate the kingdom. But that was not the goal of the first coming. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah, but he is also the slaughtered lamb. He is the one true king who conquers the whole earth, but he is also the suffering servant. The donkey was not the mount of a king or a soldier. Morris puts this into perspective. He says, the ass was the mount of a man of peace, a merchant or a priest. A king might ride an ass on occasion, but he would be more likely to appear on a mighty war horse. Zechariah's prophecy saw Messiah as the prince of peace. And he does indeed bring peace. Peace with God, peace in our circumstances in life. The humble servant of God went against every expectation of Messiah that the Jewish people had, had still had um, and still have today. In an interview with Ben Shapiro, he affirms that the Messiah is to be this great warrior. He views the Messiah as somebody who will come and overthrow the evil kingdoms of the world to free Israel 
But God entered into his own creation as a human baby, only to grow up. But if God, sorry, if God entered into this world as a human baby, only to grow up and be a good teacher and then die, this doesn't, ex- this doesn't fit the expectations most people think of when they think of a Savior. We think of, I mean, th- this is why Christ is unique, is the interpretation of Scripture that we have. The Messiah was never going to come as this warrior to overthrow the Roman government. It was, we have to take all of Scripture together. And we know that he was going to come as a baby, and he was going to grow up, and he was going to grow in wisdom, and then he was going to die for the sins of his people. That's the first part. And then we have the second part that comes. But it's interesting also in, in reference to Christ's humility in this, um, in this day today, in Palm Sunday, the Anglican litur- liturgy for Palm Sunday, one of the readings is Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 11. It says this, "'Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name.' So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Book of John says that Christ entered into his own creation, though his people did not even know him. The first coming was a humble coming. It was to save, seek and save the lost. The second coming, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. John 6.15 says that the people were wanting to take Jesus by force at one point and make him their king. His reaction to this was withdrawing to a place by himself. Yet now, as he's riding in on the donkey, he willingly goes to this earthly crowd riding this donkey to be crowned with a crown of thorns. And he is the one who initiated this progression. He is the director of the events. We see more of this when we continue on in verse 33 through 36 of our passage. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. So the event happens just as Jesus predicted that it would. Someone sees them and asks, about what they're doing, and they do exactly as Jesus says. This is a great testimony to obedience. Uh, They didn't have to explain anything to this person. They didn't have to figure out words to say, but the words of Christ were, oddly enough, sufficient. This is also something else that may be considered here, a contrast between Christ's birth and early life and the end of it. At the beginning, there was anguish among the people because of the slaughter of the children, Jesus was taken and essentially hidden for a time. Now, at the end of his life, he is ushered into the city with praise and joy. There was a stirring of the people. The people were expecting him, as John's account says. So, of course, they, they expected their Messiah to be coming. This was what they, they wanted. But, of course, this didn't last. 
but something that I found interesting. But the second half of verse 35 is significant for two reasons. The first is ceremonial, and the second is symbolic. The ceremonial aspect is the laying down of the garments. This, is not, um, this, this circumstance is not exactly unique to Jesus. Uh, Jehu was one of Israel's kings chosen by God. And if you look at 2 Kings 9, starting in verse 11, it says, When Jehu came out to the servants of his master, they said to him, Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, You know the fellow and his talk. And they said, That is not true. Tell us now. And he said, Thus, and so he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then, in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Laying their garments down, they welcomed the new king of Israel. They recognized him as the one anointed by God. And as he entered in and rode on, more and more people joined in this praise. Secondly, the symbolic portion, the people enthroned Jesus. In the other Gospels, they make mention of Jesus riding on the donkey, but in Luke, it's interesting because he records that Jesus is, they set Jesus on the donkey. They were the ones who placed him on the colt. Going on, verse 37, as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Um, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. There's a very specific word that goes along with Palm Sunday that Luke doesn't record, but Matthew and Mark do, and that's the word Hosanna. We, we sang it a little bit earlier. But this is thought to be a declaration of praise, but, it, but actually it comes as more of a plea for salvation. And the most direct translation from the Hebrew would be, I beg you to save or please deliver us. This would, of course, fit with their expectations of him as the coming conqueror. And we know that he did deliver and save, but they were looking outwardly, the physical. But this is indeed, if even just for this moment, a true recognition of their Messiah and King. This is often how people view, view Christ today, a temporary Messiah. They worship him for as long as he meets their needs and as long as he meets their expectations. But the expectation of triumph was even turned on its head in this story, if we consider it. When a king would enter into a city in great victory, he would be ushered in by the citizens and his great army. Songs would be sung and people would celebrate and he would often go to the primary temple of the city he was entering and go and make sacrifice, uh, associating himself with whatever god that temple was dedicated to. Jesus entered in with a few followers and praise, but he had no grand army. He entered the city and did not go to uh, a temple to offer sacrifice, but instead he went to the temple and he cleansed the temple. And he identified himself as God. Verse 39, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Throughout Jesus' ministry, Jesus would often, um, when he would do a miracle or a great sign, he would tell the person, Go and do not tell anyone what you had seen or witnessed. There are several times that we see that. Um, But now, when Jesus rebukes his Pharisees, when they tell him to rebuke his followers about their praise to him, his time had come. 
his hour had come. It was no longer tell no one, but now it was if people are silent, the very stones would cry out. Many Christians still act like Jesus is saying, tell no one what you have seen. They preach a Jesus that fits their own desires and expectations, a Jesus who can't save, a Jesus that has no authority, a Jesus who doesn't offend anybody. But so many places that call themselves churches today would be more like the Pharisees here, seeking to take attention off of Christ because they don't understand who he is or what he came to do, what he has done, what he has accomplished for you and for me. But we have to get Christ right. We have to understand who he is and what he has done, or else why are we even here? What are we even doing? If we're not concerned with getting Christ right, if we just want him to fit our expectations, why bother praying? Why put yourself in a vulnerable position of sitting here this morning? If you're sitting here this morning, and I, 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 I hope that your uh, answer is because you want to fall more deeply in love with your Savior and to, and to sit under the preaching, I hope that is your answer. And to know him, to know Christ for who he says he is and what he has done. If you're here for that reason this morning, that's good. You're, you're here for the right reasons. And if you're here because you're a Christmas or Easter crowd person, I'm glad you're here too. But I, I pray that you hear and you understand who Jesus is and what he has done. To know that he is our one and only hope in a dead and dark and dying world. Christ is the only solution to the sin problem that we actually have. And he humbled himself, and he rode into Jerusalem to face his execution in our place for our sins to show the deep love that the Father has for his elect. It is true triumph because of what was accomplished in the week after he rode in. If Jesus is not God, if Jesus is just a good man who taught good things, there is no triumph in what he did. He made a fool of himself. He achieved nothing. But if he is God, if he is the God-man, his triumph is more than we can ever possibly understand, and we get to share in it. It is a true triumphal entry because of what he has accomplished. Because Jesus loves you. Until Christ comes again and makes all things new, there will be darkness and sin and ugliness and fear, and we will see more events like we saw on Monday. But only God can use something so tragic and make it mean something and give it a purpose to bring those of his elect to himself. Because just days after this triumphal entry, the same crowds who shouted, praise him and blessed be the name of the Lord, were calling for the blood of the same man. The greatest tragedy that ever took place on this earth was the greatest plan of redemption, to heal the world and to bring the sheep to their shepherd. If you are here this morning and you do not know Christ as your Savior, there is no better day than today. Repent of your sins and believe the gospel. Accept the king who came into Jerusalem to die in your place for your sins. Run to Christ and be forgiven of your sins and wash clean of all your guilt. In a moment, we're going to sing a song called In Christ Alone, which has one of my favorite lines of any song ever written, and it says, No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the promise of Christ in me, and that is the promise that's being offered to you this morning if you do not know Christ. Repent and turn to him as your Savior. Let's pray. Father in heaven, 
we do recognize that this week is a week that we remember what you did, the sacrifice you made, the great triumph of your victory over sin and death and hell. And Lord, we know that we deserve no grace. We deserve no favor from you. But Lord, you and your great mercy and your great kindness and your love towards your people have brought us to yourself. You sent your Son. You sent the King of kings and Lord of lords in a humble manner to seek and save the lost. And Lord, as we await that great day when Christ returns and he establishes his great kingdom, Lord, that that will be a wonderful and beautiful day that we look forward to. I pray if there's anybody in here right now who does not know you, that you would speak to their heart, that you would take out their heart of stone, replace it with that heart of flesh, that they may know you and share in that great glorious triumph that you accomplished. In Jesus' name.